that I would give him the rest of my life to serve him. And Monday night, I found myself dressed in a moo-moo with this, like, grandma curler wig on for the youth at House of Faith, to which a majority of them said, man, Tara, that's a really great look for you. And, you know, that's not, that isn't what I was looking for. It's not the best compliment in the world. And so I was like, God, this is not what I meant when I told you that. Like, you know, it's so this morning as I got up super early, way earlier than I ever preferred to get up. I said, Lord, this is not what I had in mind when I told you this. Uh, but thank you, Melissa, for the incredibly kind words. And it really is an honor to be here. Y'all have supported House of Faith over the years. And so on behalf of House of Faith, thank you for that. Um, there are thousands of children and youth who are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ because of people like you. Who not only pray for us, but give to us. Um, and they'll never get the opportunity to say thank you. So thank you for that. I want to um, open in prayer, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you that you're not tired today. God, thank you that you're not having a bad day. You're not overwhelmed and stressed out, and you're not uh, freaking out about all your to-do lists. As a matter of fact, you are incredibly good at everything you do. God, you are knitting babies together in their mother's wombs, and you are hearing billions of prayers all at the same time, and you're keeping number of hairs on heads of billions of people and you're perfectly crafting and creating the fingerprints uh, of people and, and you created an incredible sunrise and gave us rain that we so desperately needed god thank you for being who you are that you are faithful you are unchanging the one true god thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning god i pray that we would hear your voice this morning not mine. God, I pray that we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, not me. Just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I, um, <clears throat> I was raised in a praying home, the youngest of seven children with four older brothers. Trust me, you would have been praying too. <laughs> One of my favorite brothers' pastime, I had this stuffed animal monkey, and uh, his name was Charlie, and I took this stuffed animal everywhere. I mean, like church, right? Like my stuffed animal got saved when I got saved. And my brothers, I've always been like a short little tyke, and my brothers used to love to take my monkey and put him on the ceiling fan and crank that ceiling fan on high speed, man. And I just watched my monkey fly off, and I would cry, and they would laugh, and you know, the saga continued, and so. Um, you know, I grew up in a home that believed in prayer, and, and my mom, um, she was a woman of prayer, and she taught us at a young age to pray. And I believe that prayer is one of the most powerful resources untapped into in today's society. We live in a society where it's fix it, Pinterest, I'm going to figure out how to change this thing. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is to be still and to let God be God. Uh, sometimes we think that we know better than God. And the reality is we don't and we never will. Our finite minds can never understand his ways. Scripture says that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And uh, regardless of how many times I myself have told the Lord that I could probably do it better, um, you know, he's been right my entire life and I've been wrong. And so <clears throat> even in my journey in coming to Texas, I was in the middle of a cornfield and and. When I drove down here, I was supposed to go to Africa to do my internship, fell through last minute. And uh, I'd never been to Texas, and y'all have zero personal space here. Like, you just hug everyone, and you want to touch everyone. And where I'm from, we all, like, have a bubble, you know what I mean? And, and you don't enter that bubble unless someone says, okay, come here, you can have a hug. And 
y'all just, you know, you create your own words and your own lingo and you just hug the mess out of people. And so the whole way down here, I was nine months clean and sober. And so I'm super grumpy, super on edge all the time. And it took me 24 hours to drive and it got warmer and warmer the further south I got. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's hot. And uh, even the signs on the bridges that said, caution, road may ice, or whatever. I was like, this has got to be some practical joke. Like, it's roasting. The further south I go, I'm just like cranking the AC in my car. Because when I left Illinois that day, there was like eight inches of snow. And so, you know, it was like freezing. And then I keep going. And it's like getting hot. And I'm like, where, where am I going? And so the whole way on my drive, 24-hour drive that I split in between two days, I literally told God, God, you have no idea what you're doing. You've got this all wrong. This is the worst idea in the world. And um, it turns out he knew exactly what he was doing. Exactly what he was doing. Because I get to work with a lot of children and youth who have a story very similar to mine. Um, and St. Angelo's been a great place for me. Gotten to meet a lot of special people here. And uh, House of Faith has been an incredible part of my journey. And I have been reminded yet again that the Lord knows what he's doing. Uh, Corey Ten Boom says this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. And uh, I want to go to Numbers 27 this morning, starting in verse 1. It's about the daughters of Zelophehad. And I want to share with you all just a little bit about prayer, and then I have a personal story, and then we'll be done. Um, but it starts with this in verse 1. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan, because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman, of his clan, and he shall possess it, possess it, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. There's not a lot we have to break down in this passage, except for back in Bible times, when the father would die, the sons would get the inheritance, and the father's name would, would progress, and so there's these daughters with these really crazy names I imagine were difficult to learn how to spell, and, and they went to Moses, they said, hey, look, it's not our fault that we're females. It's not our fault that our dad had no sons. Why does it have to be like this? And I think that's the starting point for wrestling in prayer. When, when, when we experience something that doesn't line up with the word of God, we have a choice. Either we're going to contend for what's right and true according to the word of the Lord, 
or we'll just settle for it. These daughters of Zelophehad, they refused to settle for it. And they said, Moses, like, come on, there's got to be a better way. And Moses, being the incredible leader that he was, does what? Takes their case before the Lord. Hey, God, you already know everything because that's just who you are. But just in case you missed the memo, the daughters of Zelophehad are kind of salty, you know, because they're women, they're not sons, and they want a possession among the land. You know, and so Moses goes before God in prayer. And he just says, this is what's going on. What do you say? And God says, you know what? They're absolutely right. Change the law of the land from this point forward so that no one would be left out. And that strikes me for several reasons. One is this. Good leaders, number one, plead the cause of others more than their own case. We live in a world today in which there are thousands of people who have no voice. But you and I have a voice. And prayer is accessible to all of us. It doesn't cost to pray. It's not like there's a limit. It's not like God is like, oh, Tara, you've had seven prayers today. You're running close to your daily limit. Choose carefully, you know. I mean, what if that were the case, you know? Um, We get to freely enter. It says in Hebrews, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence in our time of need because we have a high priest, Jesus, who understands and who intercedes for us. Good leaders always plead the cause of others more than their own case. It's hard to fight for others when we ourselves are in a battle, isn't it? It's hard to give up our plate of food when we're hungry, you know? And it's hard to consider others better than ourselves, just like Scripture says, but good leaders always do that. Moses did that. Moses could have been like, all right, all right, settle down. Like, you'll be fine. It'll be okay. You know, you can come visit my land when when you get older. You know, like... He could have said a million different things, but but Moses, being the incredible leader that he was, went with their cause before the Lord. Number two, good leaders pray without stopping, even when it's redundant. I was the youngest of seven, and my family didn't have much growing up. And uh, I remember my brothers were in this program at the church called Bible Bowl, and basically they they memorized really huge passages of Scripture, largely from the Old Testament, like, the passage I just read where it's like the clansmen and all the names. And then they would enter a competition, um, and it's kind of like trivia, and basically it was who knew a majority of the Bible. And so every year at the North American Christian Convention, there was a competition. So it like started small and regional, and then there was a national competition. So if you made it all the way to the national championship at the North American Christian Convention, first of all, there's like thousands of Jesus-loving people in a room cheering you on, and who doesn't love that, right? <laughs> Talk about ultimate nerd fest, but it's awesome. And so my brothers, um, they didn't, my, there was no money for them to go to college. And so my mom said, girls, we're going to pray for your brothers to win the competition. Now, for like the first three days, I was excited, right? Like, okay, cool. We'd sit down, we'd hold hands. God, please help Peter and Paul win the competition, you know? After three days, I was over it. And we prayed for weeks. And my mom was like, no, we're going to pray. And I'm like, we're saying the same prayer. Like, we can only say this. I'm tired. I'm running out of oxygen. Like, I'm tired of saying, God, please help my brothers win, right? Because to me, it was like redundant. Like, what's the point? I didn't quite understand. But I'll never forget the day at the North American Christian Convention in St. Louis when my brother's team won the competition. And they both got a full-ride scholarship to go to school. I'll never forget that. I didn't understand that as a child. But as an adult, good leaders pray without stopping, even when it's redundant. It says that in Scripture somewhere. I didn't have time to look it up. It says pray without ceasing, okay? And number three, 
Good leaders listen and obey. God's voice must be louder than all the others. I don't know if you've ever um, told God, uh, can you speak up, sir? I'm not quite sure what you're saying, you know? I don't think God needs to turn up his volume. I think we just need to turn the volume way down on all the other voices. All the other opinions. All the other influences. God is always, always speaking. We just miss it. I want to close with a story. It was... um, 2012, when I was in Haiti, I'm going to pass some pictures around. You all can just flip through and pass it around. We're going old school today. It was 2012, and I was in Haiti, and I'd been to Haiti probably a dozen times by this point, and uh, been on several different mission trips and love international missions, love children. Um, I'm always, like, throwing football with the little boys, the little girls that want to braid hair. I'm like, ah, not my thing, but whatever. We'll do it for Jesus, you know. uh, (laughs) It's so... Uh, we were at an orphanage, and we were there for three days. And six months before this trip, um, I had watched a documentary at my sister's house in Chicago. And the documentary was about Restavex. And Restavex are child slaves in Haiti. Haiti, 80% of the population lives on less than $2 per day. And there are hundreds of thousands of orphans running the street in Haiti because there's literally nobody to care for them. An incredibly poor country. An incredibly beautiful country. Some of the most beautiful, strongest, Jesus-loving people I know live in Haiti. And um, so the idea of Arrestebek is this. Uh, with an orphan, they don't have parents. The orphanages are overran. There's no room. There's no government funding. I mean, it's a mess. Like, there's no Amber Alert, right? Here, someone's missing. We get an alert on our phone, and we're all looking, and we're all helping. It's not like that in places like Haiti. And so Roberta, this is the child you'll see that's being passed around, she was a Restavec. She was an only child. Her parents died when she was very young, so she was sent to live with an uncle. Um, and, and so Restavecs often work, and, but the problem is they don't just like work, like do your chores. They do like hard physical labor, like the work that a grown man would do. They're not allowed to go to school. They're not allowed to go to church. They're not allowed to have friends. There's often abuse of every kind, sexual, physical, emotional, mental. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and so it's a real problem. And, but it's how Haiti deals with the orphan crisis because they don't know what to do. They don't have the resources. If you lived on less than $2 per day and you had a child to take care of, how are you going to make it? You know, they don't have resources. Um, Kids in Haiti on the street, they steal bread, not because they're trying to be punks, but because they're literally hungry. Um, And I'm sure most of you have heard stories about how in these nations, they'll take mud and they'll mix it with water and they'll make what's called a mud cake or a mud cookie and they'll eat it just to have something in their stomach. Um, And so Roberta was the rest of it. Her parents died when she was young. She was sent to live with an uncle. And then one day her uncle decided he was done with her. So he called the orphanage and said, I'm done with her. Come get her. So the orphanage went and got her. So in her 2012, when I'm on this trip, and I fell in love with this little girl. Like, I can't even explain. Uh, And it was, we were just there three days. I know a little bit of Creole, but not much. She knew no English, because at the age of 11, when she arrived at the orphanage, she had never been to school, didn't know how to spell her name, didn't know how to write her name, Um, had never been to church, had never even had a pair of shoes. Um, and so the three days I was there, we couldn't communicate much, but somehow the silence between us like spoke volumes. I can't even really explain it. And by the end of the third day, she was holding my hand, 
called my mom, kissing me on the cheek, all of which completely creeped me out, mind you. <laughs> and uh, she would walk me to my room every night, and then every morning she'd be waiting at the bottom of the stairs for me. Um, and we would spend our days together. And so I, my heart was so moved in the deepest place, I nearly didn't get on a plane to come back. And I thought, well, that would be kind of bogus to do that at House of Faith. Like, you can't just, you know, just move. And so um, I came back, and I prayed, and I didn't know if I was supposed to adopt this little girl or move to Haiti and do missions work or stay here at House of Faith. And so um, I prayed and asked the Lord, and uh, through a series of events, he said, just keep taking short-term trips. Like, that's what I have for you now. So I said, okay, cool. And every time I prayed for Roberta, I couldn't even say words. Like, I just cried. But, you know, I think some of our best prayers are the tears-only prayers, you know, because he gets it, and, and he prays on our behalf. And so fast forward three years, and I get a message uh, from the missionary at the orphanage, and it says, Dear Terry, you'll never see Roberta again. I'm so sorry. Someone came and took her from the orphanage. And my heart was ripped out. I mean, I'm thinking one day I'm going to adopt this girl. She's going to live here, and it's going to be crazy. <clears throat> and so I prayed. I didn't know what else to do. And I don't know why I often go to prayer as a last-minute option when it should be my first. You know? Because I think sometimes I can fix things on my own, but really I can't. That whole untapped into resource, that was for me. So I prayed. I said, God, what are you going to do? Like, you're God, right? And this is in the middle of Christmas season at House of Faith, which is bananas. Because we're doing parties for two weeks, and there's thousands of gifts, and it's just madness, right? And he said, Tara, go find her. <clears throat> and I said, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> and he kept saying, like, Tara, go find her. And I kept coming back with all the excuses. The typical Moses, right? Like, I stutter. I said, God, I don't know the language. I don't have time. I don't even know how to do that. And he kept saying, Tara, go find her. So I was sitting in the parking lot one day at the office, and I was talking to a friend. And I said, God is telling me to go find Roberta. And she goes, I'll go with you. I said, oh, gee, you're not making this any easier for me, you know? Like, you're supposed to talk me away from the cliff. You're supposed to be like, Tara, I think you're not hearing right, you know? Like, God's got her. She'll be okay. And so... Um, Ended up spending Christmas and New Year's uh, in Haiti. And the plan was to prayer walk the city where she was. The orphanage was in Port-au-Prince, which is like <clears throat> the lower part of the nation. She was in Capation, which is up on the northern coast, about 12 hours away. So I was going to print pictures, just like I did for this morning, and literally prayer walk the streets and be like, okay, God, you know everything. Where is she, you know? And try to ask people in very broken Creole, do you know where she is, you know? And so... Um, <clears throat> I told the missionary once I got there, he said, now why do you need a ride to the bus station? And I said, I'm supposed to go find Roberta. I burst into tears. And he laughed and he said, Tara, I'm so sorry. That's not safe for you to do. I, I will try to make a phone call. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, Willikers, all these people gave me money. Are you kidding me? Like the plan is totally foiled. This was a bad idea, God, you know? Like yet again, this was a terrible idea. And even one of my House of Faith kids, they said, Tara, what are you going to do if you don't find her? I thought, oh, gee, what a loaded question, you know? But I'd already been asking that, like, because I'm the doubter, not the faithful person. I said, well, we'll just cross that bridge when we get there, you know? But inside, I'm, like, freaking out, you know? And so every day the missionary would call, and he'd be like, Tara, I have an update. And really the update was, like, no update, right? Mm -hmm. So I went through our two-week stash of food in three days was sicker than a dog on this trip and uh, was at this orphanage with no toys because we weren't planning on being there, right? And so literally every day I have kids hanging off of me. 
and there was a little boy, cutest little boy ever, but he had sores all over his head, and his sores were oozing. And I didn't want to hold him because I didn't want my shirt to get dirty. And God said to her, you think you've got it figured out? You don't. You're going to learn how to love others, even in a mess. And those were some of the longest two weeks of my life. Out of food, out of faith, out of patience for 100-degree days with children hanging off of me, and not to mention the language barrier, feeling incredibly stretched. There's three days left in the trip. I'm sitting here trying to figure out how I'm going to explain to supporters who gave money that I didn't find her, that the whole plan was a bust. And the missionary says, Terry, get your bag. We're leaving. So my friend and I grab our backpack, and we hop into the back of this old Jeep, and there's two benches facing each other, and the bottom floor is metal, and it's, like, grooved, and there's some, like, super old guy with us, and he fell asleep, so he missed his turnoff, so he's just with us for the journey at this point. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes an ultimate road trip. Just pack a stranger next time on your family vacation. <laughs> 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 so we drive all night, and I'm sitting in the back, like, I am so lit up. Like, is this really happening? Like, God... Do you really know what you're doing? Like, was I wrong again, you know? And I'm like, man, this is a stuff. This is a missionary books I read as a kid that I wanted to be a part of, you know? And at one point, it feels like we're going to slide off the mountain. I'm like, I'm going to die for Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And so we get there at like 5 in the morning. It took us, man, 10, 12 hours. And we get there at 5 in the morning, and whosoever house we're supposed to sleep at didn't answer the phone. I'm like, of course, super convenient. So he's like, we sleep here until sun comes up, you know, and the roosters are already growing. So I lay down on this Jeep floor trying to get comfortable. I'm like, it's a sleep number mattress. You are living a dream, you know. I got this old guy's crusty foot right there as a pillow. And needless to say, I didn't sleep. And so we go into the village, and um, there's a lot of mud everywhere, so we had to park and walk and. Uh, when you're the only white person in a very um, otherwise area, you become you quickly become the talk of the village. So everyone started gathering and staring, and we go into this one room house that was made of cinder block, and there's a sheet hanging in the middle to make it two rooms. And all the villagers are just gathering, and, and they're leaning into the doorway, and my heart's racing, and I'm so tired and so lit up, and uh, they're just staring at us. And... I'll never forget when Roberta walked into the room and we gave each other a really big hug. And I was able to hand her a letter that I'd written her a year before. And we sat and we talked with our uncle and we basically said, listen, Roberta needs to go home. She needs to be in school. She needs to be in church. And we handed him a thousand American dollars cast, which was a, a big chunk of change for someone in Haiti. And we basically bought Roberta's freedom and we loaded up and we took her uh, home and um, <clears throat> we stopped at a restaurant on the way home. And I, I don't quite understand this, but she didn't get food to eat. But I'll never forget the way she scraped the plates into a to-go container because she was thinking of her friends at the orphanage. Mm-hmm. She was going to eat the chicken bones that had already been picked off of. So we pull into the orphanage late that night, and the children are swarming the gate, and they're jumping around on their teeth. They're like, Roberta, Roberta. I'll never forget that moment. The next day, I wanted to tell Roberta how much God loved her, that he would do this. I wanted her to understand that God sees her and God knows her because this is like unheard of. What are the odds, you know? 
that white girl in San Angelo, Texas, who's completely stressed out and freaking out all the time, would, would go on this journey, you know? But I'll never forget what Roberta told me in that interview. She told me that for one week, three times a day, she prayed that God would send me to find her. I believe that prayer is one of the greatest untapped into resources of our time. I, I could have missed it. I nearly did. And just as powerful as prayer is, so is our obedience. We will never know why God is asking us to do something, and it will likely never make sense, but we have no idea who's on the other side of that thing praying. God, please, I need money for my electric bill. God, please, I need to feed my babies. I want to give my children a Christmas. A little girl in Capetian, Haiti, prayed, and God connected the dots somewhere between Capetian, Haiti, and St. Angelo, Texas. That was only God. That wasn't me. It was only God. So I guess here's my challenge for all of us. What prayers are you praying for the sake of others? What cause for others are you pleading before the Lord? Are you being persistent in that? And how are you choosing to obey or not obey? I think if we really understood how our obedience affects the lives of others, we would live our lives differently. I know this, man. Roberta, happy little girl. She's 18 now, believe it or not. 18, still at the orphanage, going to school, still learning. Um, happiest little girl ever. Doing phenomenal. And as glad as I am that she's at the orphanage, I'm more glad that Roberta knows that there's a God who hears her prayers who cares enough about her that he would orchestrate those details. But that same God is the same God for you and I. So I'm going to close in prayer. God, thank you for this morning. And God, thank you for Roberta. <laughs> God, thank you for her story. Thank you for the incredibly dark chapters of her life that have shaped her into the young woman that she is. God, thank you for her freedom. Thank you that today she's at the orphanage and she's helping in the kitchen and she's going to school. God, thank you that Roberta knows that you hear her when she prays. God, I want to have a belief like Roberta. Forgive me for the times when I have been filled with more doubt than faith. When I have chosen to fight battles on my own and in my own strength instead of tapping into you. God, forgive me for the times that I've been too busy doing instead of just being still and remembering and knowing in the deepest place that you are God. You do all things well, and you are really, really, really good at everything you do. And I'm sorry that I've missed that time and time again. But thank you for your grace, for your mercy. God, that you're so patient with me. You're so patient with us. God, I thank you for the leaders in this room. Leaders who pray. Leaders who serve. Leaders who give. God, I pray that we would be a people who are quick to obey. Without understanding, without reason, without questioning. That we would just obey. God, may we be a people of prayer. Not just at a prayer breakfast. But every day of our lives. Every hour of every day. 
God, may we be a people who plead for the cause of others. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.